For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're in the last, really, third of the book of John, and what we talked about last week is this idea that, you know, <coughs> a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is really about understanding what is God like. It's God in a human context that the best way for us to understand his nature, his character, and who he is. He's an infinite being. It's hard for us to even ponder what that means. But when he comes and dwells among us and puts himself, limits himself, and puts himself in human situations, we begin to see who he really is in a whole new way. That the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says that he's the exact representation of God's being. He's the radiance of God's glory. That God has shown us what he's like through the scriptures and through the prophets. But in these last days, he's shown us who he is in his son. And that this is a higher, more accurate form, a clearer picture of who he is. Where we are in the book of John is toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's six days before the, persec- before the crucifixion, that he has uh, been polarizing people, that people, when they interact with him, when they see him, when they're confronted by him, he's so loving and he's so compassionate and he's so serving and he heals people and he does these great miracles, but then he rails against the religious traditions of his day. And he talks about how the, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, are the blind leading the blind and they think it's all about rules when it's really about love and relationship. The period here is the, the Passover festival is about to take place, which is one of the biggest events of the, of the Jewish calendar. And everybody who can, everybody from all over Israel, comes into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the religious r- rulers are looking for Jesus to show up. They want to kill him. And so Jerusalem is a very dangerous place for him and his disciples because it's like a trap just laid waiting for him. And so we get to John 12, verses 12 through 19, and we read, on the next day, after what we read about last week where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and they had done these things with him. So the people who were with him when he called, when he, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. And for this reason, all the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So they keep trying to discredit him. They keep trying to intimidate him. They keep trying to put him down. And as this moment in his life comes to this crescendo moment of this coming into Jerusalem for this festival, The people line the street with palm fronds and they cry out that he is God, that he has come to save them, that he is the king of Israel. The opposite reaction of what the Pharisees are hoping for. 
And so these people are showing up, and there are different theories. It's important that we understand the historical context. In Jesus' day, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were desperately waiting for a Messiah. They knew the promises of Daniel and Jeremiah. They knew that God was going to come and do something great, establish a kingdom. And in their particular context, they had been conquered by one of the greatest empires the world has ever known, the Roman Empire, at the height of its power. And they were looking out, and to them, it was like, these people don't know God. They don't know Abraham. They don't know Isaac. They don't know Jacob. These are a non-Jewish people who have completely dominated the world and completely dominated the people of God. And they were hoping and expecting that God himself, how are we going to get out from under the the rule of Roman thumb. And it was like only God himself will have to come and free us and liberate us and establish the kingdom that he promised. So when they are looking at Jesus, a man who raises people from the dead, they're like, this is it. This must be it. He's going to come and he's going to conquer Rome. And so they call him the king of Israel and they cry out, Yet there, was, uh, there were other theories. There were other scriptures that talked about the suffering servant who would come and he would be pierced for our transgressions, whipped for our iniquities. That there was a picture here of a, of a servant who would come and lay down his life for the people, which was a different picture from the conqueror. And so there was some debate about this. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, wrote, No single form of messianic expectation was cherished by Jesus' contemporaries, but the hope of a military Messiah predominated. The promises of a prince of the house of David who would break the oppressor's yoke from his people's neck seemed to many to be designed for such a time as theirs, where the yoke was imposed of Herodian ruler or by a Roman governor. So the writings of the time key us into what people were really looking for. They were looking for someone to free them. And they knew from Scripture certain things. The Messiah would be born of a virgin, would be born in Bethlehem, would be a descendant of the King David. Daniel 9, in a very fascinating prophecy, would seem to point to the Messiah coming into his own, coming into his role around 33 A.D., And Daniel 2 would promise that when the Messiah comes, he will establish an eternal kingdom. So they were reading scriptures like this from Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that the kingdom will not be left for another people that will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream about statue that represented the flow of human history. And named the kingdoms that would follow in this predictive prophecy. And toward the end of the statue, the bottom of the statue, were the legs of iron. Which so clearly fit with Rome. But the feet of the statue were a mixture of iron and clay. And in the image, this stone that was cut without human hands comes and smashes the statue during the period of the time of iron and clay. And this grows into a mountain that, and God says, this is the kingdom of God that will be established, that will wipe out the, kings of men, the kingdoms of men and establish God's eternal kingdom. And they're like, well, we're, we're looking at Rome. This must be the time. This must be the time of iron and clay. And this must be the Messiah and the one who's going to come. 
Jeremiah 23, five through six says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. This is what we all want in a way. We want peace. We want justice. We want harmony. We want goodness to prevail. We want fairness. We want freedom. And so they're looking and they're placing their hope on what Scripture has told them is going to be an eternal kingdom with a just ruler whose name is Mighty God. And in their context, the, uh, this could only be one thing. Get the Romans out. Only God, only an act of God could overturn the incredible imbalance of power between the tiny nation of Israel and one of the greatest empires the earth has ever known. And they cry out as Jesus enters the city, they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally translates means save us please. Save us. As Jesus comes into the city, they're crying out, save us. And this term, Hosanna, is a very special term. It's only for God. It's a cry to God for salvation. And they're saying it to Jesus. They're claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's very important to know Jesus' response to this. Jesus is not like, oh, no, 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 please don't do that. No, no, that's not appropriate. I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm not the Messiah. Don't think I'm God. You know, you take a Bible is lit class or you watch the History Channel and they're like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, read your Bible. He's coming in to this situation and if he's not God and they're proclaiming him king, how do you think Rome is going to respond? They didn't, Caesars didn't share very well, right? And so to a, a proclaim him the king of Israel their Savior, their Messiah, would have been an even more dangerous thing. And what they're actually doing here is they're quoting Psalm 118, which is a well-known psalm about the Messiah. Psalm 118, 21 to 27 says, I shall give thanks to you for the answer. You have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief's cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad on it. Oh, Lord, do save, we beseech you. Hosanna. Oh, Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horn of the altar. So they're invoking this picture. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're waving these palm fronds, which doesn't have a lot of specific scriptural significance. But in the ancient world, when you go and you look at pieces uh, recording like Roman triumphal entries, where conquerors would come into town. This was a common practice in many of the cultures in the Middle East is they would wave these palm fronds to welcome a conqueror. And this is where we get Palm Sunday from is the fact that he's entering in just before Easter, the week before Easter, 
and they are welcoming him as their Savior, their Messiah, and their King. And Jesus doesn't stop them. Jesus looks at this as an appropriate reaction for who he is. And one of the other accounts, not in John, they actually say to him, you know, teacher, stop them. This is inappropriate. And he says, if I stop them, the stones themselves would cry out. This is appropriate. Jesus is God. He believes that he is God, and he has come to save them. He knows when they cry out, Hosanna, he's like, that's why I'm here, baby. That's exactly what's going to happen is you're going to get saved, but not in the way they expect. They were expecting political salvation, and he was going to give them something far more profound than political liberation. He was going to save their souls to take the punishment for their evil upon himself. And so this whole picture is in the context of a royal procession, right? And this was something that, you know, was common in when a, a ruler or a king would make, you know, a big entry. The way that you show up, the mode of transportation of how you come on the scene was a big thing. I know we don't do that anymore. We don't care about, you know, what we drive and, uh, you know, but there's a whole industry. The luxury car industry is based upon the idea of you can rest your identity and how you get places, right? This thing, I couldn't believe when I found this. I thought, you know, this must be like a Disney mock-up. No, that's Queen Elizabeth. That's her ride. It's just like, wow, you know, royalty coming on the scene. It makes this big, flashy picture. You know, we have these uh, depictions of the Roman conquerors entering Rome, riding on glorious golden chariots with a whole host of the conquered people and the, the loot from their campaign would trail in and at the very end the, the Caesar or the general would arrive and everybody would stand up and, and cheer because of the victory that he had won for Rome. This was what they were used to. Even Prince Ali had a fat ride. You know, that, that whole scene is a really great depiction you know, where they're coming in and they're showing all the golden monkeys and all the things and it's just like this big... It makes me miss Robin Williams a little bit. Tear. But that is the picture of this royal entry, the grand stage of expressing who you are and your power and your wealth and your might. And when the king of the universe shows up, when the almighty God enters in as the conqueror and ruler of the world... He picks this. It's like this incredible opportunity for God to just tell us how silly we are. How different He is from us. That He is not like us. Zechariah 9, 9-10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and he is endowed with salvation, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of, bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is deliberately invoking this picture as he rides in on a donkey and they proclaim him king and savior. God is not like us. Isaiah 55, seven through nine, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heaven is higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts I don't have to demonstrate my power in this way because I am secure in who I am and I value love and peace and humility over violence and oppression. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. And some of our translations translate that as meek, which is a word that I've really, in my entire life, Christian and non-Christian, who wants to be meek? You know, I think about like droopy, like meek. You know, it's just like this, I don't even like the word meek probably tells you more about me than anything else, right? <laughs> but God says that he is meek and that he wants us to be meek. But it's interesting when you get in and you, under, you understand the word that's actually being put here in Greek, the original Greek. What did Jesus say? He says, blessed are the praus, the praise. And that word has a very important specific meaning. Would you believe that that word is the word in Greek for war horse? Blessed are the war horses. You're like, come on, Ryan. Well, let me explain what it means. Think about this. In the ancient world where the biggest you know, weapon that you can get is like a bow and arrow or a spear or a sword, an armored horse would be like a tank, Right? Very, very, very powerful animal. Many times more powerful than any individual human. But as powerful as this animal was, what did it have to be able to do? It was in submission to its rider. A much weaker human who did not have the, anywhere near the physical strength of the horse would be able to control the horse. And this became the concept of strength under obedience. And that word praise is what we translate today as the word meek. And this picture of the all-powerful creator God of the universe, Jesus Christ, was infinitely powerful, but so under restraint, so in control, not needing to prove his power. And what he's saying here is in this picture of riding in on a donkey of, yeah, I have all the glory and all the power, but I don't need to show it. And I'm being an example to you of how you should live your lives if only we could be meek. 
someone who is capable, whether it's intellectual or physical, whatever the power and the strength, the, you know, we desire strength. And that is not a wicked thing to desire. It's what you do with that strength. Do you give it to the Lord and put it under His control? Or do you use it selfishly for the oppression of others? Being meek, being humble, being gentle, as the Lord is talking about it here, is about taking your strength and putting it to God's purposes. God is saying, I am not like you. I will conquer through peace, through love, through patience, through understanding. And Jesus has come to die in order to conquer the power of sin. That's His mission. He is on a mission that is going to lead directly to the cross. Six days later, the crowd that's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, welcome the King of Israel, is going to be the same crowd that's yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That picture of what he came to do was not to overthrow the Romans. It was to defeat death itself. To destroy our alienation from our creator. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57 says, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to conquer but he was going to conquer alienation. He was going to conquer separation. He was going to conquer the emptiness in our soul and quench the thirst that we have for a relationship with our Creator. He would come back. He will come back, according to Scripture. And the second coming. And at that time, he won't destroy the power of sin because that's already been destroyed. But he will destroy the presence of sin, which means he'll wipe out all evil and establish that kingdom. But before he came in his might to wipe out evil, he came on a donkey to die for us so that we could be saved. God's plan, you know, we look at that and we say, why wait? Why wait? Why, you know, if you look at the injustice and the pain and the suffering and all around the world, how so many people get a raw deal and there's so much to hate about man's inhumanity to man, why not wait? Why not just come and why not wipe it out right now? Jesus told a very interesting parable about that question. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, he wrote, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came out and sowed tares. It's like you planted a good crop and somebody just put weeds all over your field. They sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. And the servants said, Hey, do you want us to go gather up these weeds? 
But the master says, no, for while you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the weeds and bind them and bundle them and burn them up. But then gather the wheat into the barn. This is a picture of God's patience where he's waiting for us to make a choice. Do we want to stand before him on our own merits and our own righteousness and declare to him that we are good enough to be accepted by him? Or do we want to be humbled before him, recognizing that we need a Savior, Hosanna? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why, God, will you allow so much pain and suffering and evil to continue? Because there are still evil people that I am waiting patiently to repent. There are people that I love that if I came and destroyed all evil on earth right now, they would be included. And so I'm waiting. I'm waiting so that all can hear and all can know and everyone can wrestle and make a decision for themselves about where they stand before God. Are you going to stand and shake your fist at God and say, I will get what I deserve? Or will you stand before God in humility and recognize that you were created for Him. That's the choice. And God is still waiting. He's been waiting for almost 2,000 years now since the crucifixion. This time where the wheat and the tares grow up together. This time where decisions are being made about who God is and what our relationship with Him is. And we are wondering where do we stand? No one knows when the second coming is. Jesus said it would come like a thief in the night. Only the Father knows. It could be days from now. It could be another thousand years or 10,000 years from now. We don't know. And anyone who tells you that they do hasn't read their Bible very well. But there are things that we can do right now. Whether Jesus comes tomorrow or whether he comes 10 years from now or whether he comes 100 years from now, There are things that we can do that matter, and our time here is quite limited. What if I told you Jesus is coming back in 50 years? You would say, you just told us that you can't do that. (laughs) Right, but what if I said, you know, Jesus is coming in 50 years. Would it change the way that you're living your life right now? Do you have 50 years left? If Jesus is coming in 50 years... And that would change the way you live your life. Your opportunity to live for God is that long anyway. So whether he's coming a thousand years from now or 50 years from now, your life, the way that we live it together should be the same. We should all live as though Jesus is coming back the day we die. Because that's the end of our opportunity to make a difference here in eternity. And so there are things that we can do. We can receive Christ. We can have humility and recognize that we are not God. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That this is something that matters right now. 
Don't put this off. Don't sit back and say, oh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, maybe later in my life, I'll have time to sort this out and think about it. Don't do that. This is important. Wrestle with it now. Once we receive Christ, we have the opportunity to continue Jesus' work to free the captives, to be a part of the plan, the rescue mission of the human race, to be advocates for mercy and love and compassion and justice, to stand against the tyranny of man's selfishness, even while it still rages within ourselves. We can do something for God that matters in eternity. James 4.8 says, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And, you know, you read something like that, and you're like, that's me. You know, even as a believer of many, many years, this is where a lot of us land present company included. I, we struggle with this. We wrestle with this. But what I want to submit to you is that it's the fight that matters. If you look at that and you're like, that's not me, that's probably a bigger problem. I have no love for this world and its system. You're probably blind in a big way that's hurting you and your relationship with God. But let's admit together that we're imperfect, that we love the Lord, and a lot of us are very committed, work very hard, and prioritize the things of God, you know, very much. But even the best of us have a long way to go. Even the most righteous among us are nowhere near where we could be if we said yes to God more. And we agreed together to be a community that is dedicated to be used by Him to save the world, not really politically, but eternally. That's what we've got. God, we recognize that um, we're a long way from being like you. But we also recognize how great it is that you made us to be like you, that you want us to understand you not to be cookie-cutter copies of you, but to be different expressions of your goodness. Individuals, yet connected with each other in a way, in a bond of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, for our family members who don't know you. We pray for our friends, for the people that you've put in our lives that don't have the security or the answers or the understanding of why we're here and what matters, and how to love one another with your love. And we just ask that we could be a community that really brings that love and truth and light into the world, into the people around us who don't know you. And we pray that you'll bless our time here this morning too, that we can spend time and enjoy the blessings of what you've given us and have meaningful, deep, uh, conversations that lead us to enjoying who you are even more. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.